it's very possible that the most important meeting taking place in this building right now is not what's happening in this room, but what's happening downstairs with the children. So I want to pause and pray for Jim and Eileen Nielsen as they talk to our children this morning. Years ago, we did a worldwide written survey of a thousand Bible-believing missionaries around the world, and one of the questions on the survey was this. How old were you when you knew for sure that God was calling you to be a missionary? And 75% said it was before they were 12 years old. So what's happening downstairs may be the most important meeting of the day. Would you pause and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Jim and Eileen who have lived 24-7 in the very heart of the devastated region of Japan, showing the love of Jesus to those precious people. And as they speak now to our children, I pray that you would give the boys and girls of this church open hearts to hear what your spirit wants to say to them. And that as you move their hearts for your world and the people in this world that still need you, and as they talk with their parents about this afterwards, that you would give their parents freedom to encourage them to consider missionary service. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme for our missions weekend is Christ's last command, our first concern. The last command of the Lord Jesus before ascending back into heaven was to go into all the world and preach the good news of the gospel to everyone, everywhere. It is our Lord's desire that every man, woman, boy, or girl living anywhere on the face of the earth has the opportunity to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel. And so his last command needs to be our first concern. I am so excited about the message tonight, I want to give it now. But we're going to have to wait until 6.30. Please be back. Bring somebody with you. We're going to have a great time tonight. The message this morning, the title of the message this morning is Costly Worship. And you'll see in your worship folder this morning that there is a page on which you can take some notes, and I would like to encourage you to do that. It's my privilege to be here this morning not only to preach God's Word, but also to represent Columbia International University, which is the alma mater of your pastor and his wife and several other people who are here this morning. I have a friend who lives in Pennsylvania, 
I called him on the phone and I got his answering machine. And this is what it said. You've reached the machine. You know the routine. Beep. Well, all I can say to you is, you have the knowledge. Send your kids to our college. <laughs> and if you want to know more about Columbia International University, which is located in Columbia, South Carolina, as you leave this morning, to your right, just by the open doors, there is a table with information about our school. We have 1,250 students from 39 states, 30 foreign countries, all studying God's Word, preparing to serve the Lord in the workplace, in the ministry, and on the mission field. If you want to find out more about this excellent school, please go by there. There is information about our college. If you have a child or a grandchild who's thinking about college and you want them to go to a strong Christian Bible-centered school, you need to pick up this brochure which tells about our college. I've also brought with me something that has nothing to do with our school. It's a love story. It's free. And if you take one, you don't have to pay for it. It's entitled Living by Vows, and it is the incredible testimony of Robertson McQuilkin, former president of our university, who at the height of his presidency, long before retirement age, announced to the board of directors that he was stepping down from his position because his wife had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He went back home and cared for her 24-7 for the next, are you ready for this? 25 years. The last 12 years of her life, she never said a single word to him. And that incredible love story is written up in this little booklet entitled Living by Vows in Sickness or in Health Till Death Do Us Part. Pick it up, read it, give it to somebody else as a tremendous blessing and challenge. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn, please, to the book of Psalms, chapter 95, and we're going to look at one verse, Psalm chapter 95, verse 6. You'll see the words on the screen. You can follow in your Bible or look at the screen. And here's what Psalm 95, verse 6 says. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. I have one single thought for your consideration in this worship service this morning and in this missions weekend. And that is that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, the one who, though fully God, became fully man, never giving up one ounce of his divinity. The one who lived here in time-space history. The one who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. 
the one who was unjustly accused of crimes he never committed, the one who was condemned to die, the one who died there on Calvary's cross, not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine, the one who was buried in the ground, the one who rose again on the third day, the one who was seen by many witnesses, the one who ascended back into heaven, the one who is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, without whose prayers you and I would be consumed by the fire of God's holiness, the one who is coming back again, the one who will reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, this one, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is worthy of our worship. Do you agree? Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, we don't have time this morning to see everything that God's word teaches about the important subject of worship. But let me remind you, first of all, that true worship is pure worship. True worship is pure worship. Now, I've been speaking for maybe five and a half minutes. And as I've been speaking, I've been watching you. And I just want you to know, you look pretty good. (laughs) And that's because you chose subconsciously as your theme for getting ready for this church service this morning, you chose the words of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7b, which says, man looks at the outward appearance. Now, you knew that, and I knew that, and so we spent a little extra time getting ready this morning, and I just want you to know you did a good job. You look good, but 1 Samuel 16, 7 has a part A and a part C, and when you put it all together, it says this, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So my question this morning is, how much time did you spend getting your heart ready for this worship service this morning? Did you come here this morning to meet with God? Did you come here this morning to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. True worship is pure worship. God's Word teaches us, moreover, that true worship is not only pure worship, but true worship is honest worship. Honest worship. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of God preached against the people of God for their dishonest worship. In fact, one of the most striking verses in the entire Old Testament occurs in the prophet Amos, chapter 4, verse 4, where we read these words, Go to Bethel and sin. Did you ever see that verse? Go to Bethel and sin. Do you know what the word Bethel means? It means house of God. What is the prophet saying? He's saying, go to church and sin. And I'm convinced that more lies 
are told by people who profess to love God on Sunday morning than any other time of the week. By songs that we sing, by prayers that we pray, even by the way we talk to each other in the lobby after the worship service is over, because that's the way you're supposed to talk at church. And Jesus, following the example of the prophets, said to the people of his day, Well, did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you, saying, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me, Jesus said. True worship is pure worship. True worship is honest worship. But there's something else I want you to see this morning. And to see that, I want you to turn in your Bibles now, please, to the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, John chapter 12. The Gospel of John chapter 12. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. John chapter 12 and verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now look at verse 3 and you'll see the words also on the screen. Then Mary, now watch, this is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. By the way, I've underlined those three words in my Bible, an expensive perfume. You see that in your Bible? Maybe you have a different translation in front of you this morning. Maybe it says something like very costly. Whatever it says, you need to mark that in your Bible. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All right, now look up here just for a minute. Uh, let's, get the, let's get the scene here. Uh, you live in Jerusalem, and you've been invited to the Bethany dinner party. You walk the two miles distance between Jerusalem and Bethany, and when you get there, you arrive just a little bit late. You knock on the door, a servant opens the door, and the minute the door opens, you go, oh my goodness, what is that? Mm. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now look at the next verse. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Now look up here again. I don't want us to be too hard on Judas this morning. Let me tell you why I say that. Because this story that we are reading this morning in John chapter 12, this story in God's holy word, this story that really happened is evidently so important 
that the Holy Spirit has chosen to give it to us three times in the pages of the New Testament. Once in the Gospel of Matthew, once in the Gospel of Mark, and here again in the Gospel of John. And if you go to the other two accounts of this story, you will discover that all of the disciples were saying this, not just Judas. He was evidently the spokesman for the group, but they were all thinking this. They were all saying this. And what is it they were saying? Look at verse 5. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, the translators of the New International Version of the Bible, from which I am reading this morning, the translators, when they translated this verse from the original Greek into English, took the liberty of translating it into terms that you and I would more readily understand today when they said that the perfume was worth a year's wages. But if they had literally translated what this verse says in the Greek, they would have said this. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now let me have a show of hands. How many of you here this morning have a Bible that says 300 denarii? Put your hand up. All right, look around. I just want you to know I'm not making this up, all right? 300 denarii, okay? Now watch. A denarius was a Roman coin used at the time of Jesus. It was a little larger than an American quarter. It had a picture of Caesar on it. And a denarius at the time of Christ was worth more than one full day's wage. So, if you lived at the time of Jesus and you had a job at the Jerusalem McDonald's and you were a manager and they paid you $15 an hour and you worked eight hours a day, that would be $120. And if you multiply that by 300, you get $36,000, approximately one full year's wage. Everybody with me? Now, this is what I'd like us to do just for a minute, as painful as it may be. I would like you to think back with me, please, to April 15, 2013. Oh, here it says April 30. But I want you to think about April 15. You know why it says April 30 on the screen here? Because that, oh, do you know what April 15 is? All right, now watch. If you are a law-abiding United States citizen, by or before the 15th of April in every calendar year, you are required by the government to render an accounting of everything you earned in taxable income in the previous tax year. It's April 30th in Canada. And I was just in Canada sharing this same message and forgot to change it back to April 15th. There's a form on which you are to render that accounting. Form 1040, to be exact. And on that form, there's a line, line 7, to be exact. And on that line, it says this. Total wages, salaries, tips. And if you're an honest citizen, you will place on that line a figure that represents everything you earned in taxable income in the year 2012. 
Now, I'd like you to think about that line for a minute, and I'd like you to ask yourself, what did I put on that line? And maybe you don't remember it exactly. Just round it off. Anybody here this morning put, you know, $18,000? Maybe somebody put $27,000? Maybe somebody $41,000? Maybe fifty. dollars 65,000, 78,000, 80, some of you are saying you're leaving me now, 90, 100, we have some six-figure people here this morning, very possible, Long Island, married, filing jointly, both working for full-time, I don't know, I don't want to know, that, that's none of my business, that's between you and the government, but I just want you to get the figure in your mind, have you got the figure in your mind? Now, let's just suppose we ask Walter to come back up on the platform with the worship team and ask them to lead us in another wonderful time of singing like we did earlier. And we would stand to our feet and worship the Lord, singing his praises. And as we do, I would ask you to take out a clean piece of paper and on that piece of paper, write down the amount of money that you earned in 2012 for which you paid income tax. Don't put your name on it. Just put the figure. Then while we're singing and worshiping the Lord, I would invite you, only if you want to, nobody would have to do this, but only if you want to, I would invite you to voluntarily leave your seat and come right down this aisle to this table and kneel on the floor right here. And take the paper and put it on the table. And then after a moment of quiet prayer and reflection, get back up leaving the paper on the table, going back to your seat, and in so doing, say, Lord Jesus, I love you and worship you so much that that's how much I'm willing to give you right now. Would you do it? Oh, my goodness, where did we get this speaker? <laughs> you know, Pastor Muster needs to check these guys out a little more carefully before he lets them in here. I mean, obviously, Dr. Murray doesn't know anything about New Village Church. I can imagine one of you taking me aside afterwards and saying, Dr. Murray, let me talk to you, son. I just want you to know, sir, that my wife and I have been in this church for 25 years. In fact, we've been in this church ever since we got married. And I want you to know, sir, that the year we got married, we decided we were going to tithe our income. Tithe, 10%. Do you know how hard it is to do that when you're starting out as a married couple? But we did. Faithfully, 10%. And God blessed that as he always does. And over the years, we've learned to give far and above the tithe. We give not only to the church's regular offerings, but we give to missionaries. And then if somebody in the church gets sick and they don't have insurance or they lose their job and they don't have compensation, we write another check and slip it under the door. But an amount equivalent to everything I made in 2012, you've got to be kidding. That is ridiculous. Now watch, that's exactly what the disciples said. This is ridiculous. Who does she think she is? And who does he think he is to allow her to do this? Because you see, when you take the container and you break it open and you pour it out, you can't pick it back up. It's all gone. One full Years, wage. What's happening here in John chapter 12? Listen carefully. Listen. This is not, I repeat, this is not the impulsive whim 
of an emotional woman who doesn't realize what she's doing in the heat of the moment. And later on that night when she comes to her senses, says, what did I do that for? No, this is the knowing act of worship on the part of one Mary of Bethany who knew who Jesus was. She had constantly followed him. She had sat at his feet. She had listened to his words. She had watched his life. She had witnessed his miracles. She knew exactly who he was, and she was convinced that nothing she gave him could ever be too much. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one who gave everything for you and me, is worthy of our worship. And true worship, watch, is pure worship. True worship is honest worship. But here we see that true worship is costly worship. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning here at New Village Church is this. What is it costing me to worship the Lord. I mean, it really didn't cost that much to get up a little early, spend a few minutes getting ready, drive a few miles to sit here for an hour, two hours, toss something in the plate when it goes by, leave this place and say, I've worshipped. Oh no, true worship. And that, that is part of worship. But true worship goes far beyond that. And it involves everything I have everything I do, every moment of every day. Now, I want you to see one more verse before we go this morning, and it's way back in the Old Testament. So turn, please, to Second Chronicles chapter 3. And if you have a hard time finding that, it comes right after First Chronicles. <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 3. And while you're turning there, may I tell you about a wonderful habit that's been a part of my life now for over 45 years. For over 45 years now, I have read the entire Bible through from Genesis to Revelation at least once every year for the last 45 years. It's a wonderful habit. Uh, have you ever done that? I, I hope you will. You know, if all of the Bible is inspired by God, then we need to read all of the Bible does that make sense? All right? And I do that every year. In fact, this year, I finished my Through the Bible reading in June. So this summer, I read the New Testament again, and now I'm reading the Old Testament again, and I'll probably finish it before the end of the year, so I'll have it done twice. It doesn't take that long. In fact, if you read the Bible out loud at the speed at which I am speaking right now, you can read the entire Bible in 72 hours. If you do the division, that means 14 minutes a day. Don't tell me you can't read the whole Bible, all right? So it's my privilege and, and joy to read the Bible through every year. And now, having told you that, I need to confess to you that when I often get to certain parts of the Old Testament, I start to speed read. You know what I'm talking about? Some of those long lists. And I will confess to you that one year, I was speed reading through Second Chronicles, and I almost missed chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it in your Bible, or you'll see the words on the screen. Then Solomon 
began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Now, doesn't that verse just bless your heart? You say, well, not really, Dr. Murray. It, it, just, it just sounds like a bunch of dry historical facts. Let's get to the real story. Oh, but do you see what this verse is talking about? This verse is talking about the construction of the temple. This verse is talking about the establishment of the God-ordained place of worship. This verse is talking about worship. And if you look at it closely, you'll see there are two geographic references, and I've highlighted them for you on the screen. The first one is Mount Moriah. You see that there? I've underlined that in my Bible. Mount Moriah. And the second one is the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. I've underlined that in my Bible. Do you know anything about those two places? Let's start with the second place first. Let's start with the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Do you know anything about that? If I stopped you after this service this morning and said, would you please tell me about the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite? Would you say, well, gee, Dr. Murray, I think it's in the Old Testament somewhere, but I can't remember where it is or what it's about. All right, so if you want to remind yourself of who Araunah is, I want you to read this afternoon 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. You'll see the words on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 24. All right, now we're not going to turn there, but let me tell you what happens in that chapter. In that chapter, watch, God comes to King David through the prophet Gad, and he instructs David to go and buy a piece of property that belongs to a man by the name of Araunah the Jebusite. He's also called Ornan in the Old Testament. Same person, Ornan or Araunah. This is his threshing floor. Now, when it says threshing floor, it's not talking about a wooden floor. It's talking about a field. It's where the farmers would bring their grain, pile it up, then they would have heavy oxen walk across the grain. The weight of the oxen would separate the wheat from the chaff, and then the farmer would toss it up in the air, and the breeze would blow the chaff away, and the good grain would fall back to the ground. And where they did that was called the threshing floor. So this is a piece of real estate that Araunah owned. And David is told by the prophet Gad, by the Lord, through the prophet Gad, go and buy his field, and after you buy his field, I want you to build an altar of worship to me on that spot. And so David, in obedience to the Lord, goes to Araunah and says, I want to buy your field. And Araunah says, what do you want to buy my field for? And David tells him what the Lord has told him to do. And when Araunah hears that, he says, oh, well, if that's what you need it for, I'll give it to you. In fact, I won't just give you the real estate, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give you my oxen. You can kill them and use the meat for the sacrifice. I'll take my wooden threshing instruments. We'll break them up and use the wood for the fire. I'll give you some of my threshed grain that's already been threshed, and you can use that for a grain offering. And he's making this long list of stuff he's going to give to David, and David stops him in mid-sentence and says, no, 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 you don't understand. And then David makes this astounding statement. He says this, watch. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Now, you see the words on the screen? You heard me just say it. I want us to say these words out loud together right now as a congregation. Here we go, together. I will not offer to the Lord that which 
you mean it? Do you? What's it costing you to show the Lord how much you really love and worship him? The other geographic reference in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 is Mount Moriah. You see it there in your Bible? Mount Moriah. Do you know anything about Mount Moriah? You say, well, gee, Dr. Moriah, I know that's in the Old Testament somewhere. I'm not quite sure where, and I'm not quite sure what it's all about. So your second assignment this afternoon, after reading 2 Samuel chapter 24, is to read Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Now, we're not going to turn there, but let me tell you what happens in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham... Take now your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice to me at the place where I will show you. Abraham, who has waited a lifetime for this boy, who loves this boy more than anything else in his entire life, in obedience to the Lord, takes Isaac, gets a donkey, loads it with wood for the sacrificial fire, gets two of his servants, and all of them make a three-day journey through the wilderness until they come to a mountain called Mount Moriah. And when they get to the foot of that mountain, Abraham turns, speaks to his servants, and makes this astounding statement. He says, tarry here while the lad and I go up yonder to worship. That's what he said. To worship. He knew what he was going up there to do. He did not know the rest of the story like you and I do. And he called it worship. What does Genesis chapter 22 verse 5 tell me? It tells me that true God-honoring worship is costly worship. Now you heard in the introduction that Pastor gave before I started preaching that I currently serve as the Chancellor of Columbia International University, 1,250 students on our campus. Oh, I wish you could come. I wish you could visit. I wish you could meet these kids. I mean, they are committed to Christ. They are serious about reaching the world. They are willing and ready to throw themselves on the barbed wire for God in some of the most remote, forsaken places of the earth. I've been in 76 different countries myself with our alumni seeing what they're doing I wish you could meet them. I mean, their faith challenges my faith, and I'm so much older than they are, and yet their enthusiasm just gets me all excited again. And, and they come and they talk to me and my wife about their future plans, and they ask us to pray with them, and many of them are, are planning to take the gospel to places you don't even know exist, where people live who, like we heard this morning, are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. And it's so exciting to talk and pray with them and help them make these plans. But I know, I know, I know through many years of experience that some of those young people will never get to the mission field. And the reason why they won't go is because their parents will not let them. Oh, sweetheart, don't go there. Just think of what might happen to you. And after all, I have a right to see my grandkids grow up. I'm not going to see you just once every four or five years. Now listen to me carefully. If you're here this morning and you're a parent or you're a grandparent, one of the costliest acts of worship that you could render to the Lord Jesus, watch, may have nothing to do with your money and may have everything to do with your children. 
or your grandchildren. Are you listening to me? I'll never forget January 1956. I was living in the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Every Saturday morning, my parents would drive me to Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania, where I took art lessons from one of our country's most famous artists. I spent the entire morning with him every Saturday. He taught me how to paint with watercolor, with oil. He taught me how to sculpture. He taught me how to make stained glass. He told me how to do charcoal drawing. His name was Dad Saint. Dad and Ma Saint were not only amazingly artistic people, but they also were blessed by God with a whole house full of kids. And every time Dad and Ma Saint had another baby, they would hold that baby up to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, this little boy doesn't belong to us. He belongs to you. He's not ours. He's yours. Take him, use him any way you want, anywhere you want. Lord Jesus, this little girl doesn't belong to us. She belongs to you. She's, she's not ours. She's yours. Take her, use her any way you want, anywhere you want. And because they had that open-hearted, open-handed attitude before God when it came to the lives of their children, God took that couple at their word and their kids ended up around the world on the front lines of missionary service. And I'll never forget the day in January 1956 when the word arrived about the death of Dad Saint's boy, Nate. Many of you have been to theaters and seen the film, The End of the Spear. It's a true story. Nate Saint was a missionary pilot in the country of Ecuador. He was out flying over the rainforest one day in his little two-seater Piper Cub, and he spotted an Indian tribe that they'd prayed for and tried to locate but never been able to find them. The Walrani Indians, better known to the outside world as the Alcas. The word Walrani means the people. The word Alka means the savage. And they got that reputation because they had been violent with anybody who tried to reach them from the outside. Nate came excitedly back to the Shelmira mission station. He recruited four other young missionary men. The five of those men banded their hearts together and made a covenant before God that by his grace, they would be the ones to take the life-changing message of Jesus Christ to the unreached Alka Indians. Nate continued to fly over that Indian settlement. He dropped gifts from his plane. He made friendly contact with them. And one day when he was out flying in the area, he spotted a little sandy beach on a river about a mile from where the Indians had their tribe. He said, you know what? I bet you I could land my plane there. And he did some calculations, and sure enough, it was long enough. He landed. He took off again. He came back to the station. He said, guys, I've got the perfect place for us to set up a beachhead to reach the Indians. The day came, January 2nd, 1956. The missionaries, their families, the national believers all gathered on the tarmac. They sang. They prayed together. And then one by one, Nate flew those men into that sandy beach location. On his last flight in, he took his wife aside and he said, now, sweetheart, don't forget, we've got these little two walkie-talkie radios here. I'm going to call you every morning at 10 and every afternoon at 4, and I'll give you an update of how things are going. A week went by. It was January 8, 1956. And by the way, when I'm speaking now, 
It's a scary thing because I see people checking out my facts on their iPhone. And if you want to check it out, you go back and you'll find out that that was a Sunday. The Lord's Day, the day of worship. Nate radioed his wife at 10 o'clock in the morning and said, Oh, honey, I'm so excited. I took a little solo flight out over the, over the jungles this morning. And, and as I was flying low over the trees, I noticed 10 of the Alka Indians making their way from their settlement toward the place where we have our camp on the sandy beach. Maybe this will be the day we can begin to explain to them why we've actually come. Pray for us. I'll call you back at 4 this afternoon and let you know what happened. 4 o'clock came. There was no call. Nighttime fell. No call. Next day, nothing. Next night, nothing. On the third day, the missionary wives reluctantly concluded that something had desperately gone wrong. A search party was formed of government soldiers and missionary men, and they hacked their way three days through the jungles until they came to the place where they knew that plane had landed. And they found that plane torn apart, and they found the five bodies of those men speared to death and floating in the muddy waters of the Curare River. And when that news became known, it flashed around the world. And the leading newspaper in the capital city of Ecuador decided to put that martyrdom story on the front page of their secular newspaper, and they started their article with a bold three-word headline, and here's what it said. Why this waste? Question mark. Why this waste? What were the secular editors of that secular newspaper referring to when they chose these three words for their headline? They were referring to the fact that five young men had just died in the very prime of life, leaving behind five young widows and nine fatherless children, all for the sake of 60 that's all there were in that Indian settlement. 60 naked, savage, uneducated killing aboriginal Indians. What a waste! Little did those editors of that newspaper know that when they chose those three words for their headline, they were quoting scripture. Because in Mark chapter 14, which is the parallel passage to John chapter 12, where Mary of Bethany breaks the costly ointment on the Lord Jesus in a loving act of worship, we read that the disciples were moved with indignation and they said, why this Waste! And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, turned to them and said, Gentlemen, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's not wasting. She's worshiping. And true worship is costly worship. One of the greatest missionary hymns that was ever written is one of the greatest worship hymns that was ever written. It's in your hymn book. We're not going to sing it this morning, but this is how the words go. Listen to this. Give of your sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your souls for them in prayer victorious, and all your spending Jesus will repay. So what is God's word to us this morning? His message to us this morning is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, and true worship is costly worship. And I want us to all say the words of King David in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. You'll see the words on the screen. Let's say it out loud together right now. Here we go. I will not 
Do you mean it? Let's pray together. Let's pray. And we're going to sing in a moment. And before we sing, uh, I've talked to Pastor about this, and I just want to ask a very pointed question and give you a chance to respond. Listen carefully. With our heads bowed, waiting quietly before the Lord, if you are here this morning and you are a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent, and you are willing with your whole heart to say this morning to the Lord, Lord, I am willing to give you my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren to be used by you any way you want, anywhere you want. I will be the last person to ever stand in the way of what you, a holy, righteous God, want my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to do. If you're willing to say that this morning with all your heart, I want you to stand up right now. Stand up. Don't do it if you don't mean it. I give you my children. I give you my grandchildren. You are worthy. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you paid the ultimate price for us. And you are worthy of our costly worship. I commit to you, my brothers and sisters who are standing right now, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and the precious lives of boys and girls, young people that they represent. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to encourage our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to listen to your voice, to obey your voice, and to take the message of Jesus to the whole world and help us never to stand in the way. That's not going to be easy. It's a costly act of worship, but you are worthy. And so we worship you this morning in this way. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, would all of you stand together, please, everyone? And we're going to sing together. And pastor, if you come while we sing, and I think it's in your bulletin what the song is, How Great Thou Art. Let's